Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. I'm recording this. It is halftime of the college football championship game between Michigan and Washington. By the way, I put out an IG about this a little bit ago. IG reel or story. I don't even know what the kids call them anymore, but I, I just said I'm a USC fan and a Northwestern fan and kind of a Wisconsin fan. So <laughs> Michigan and Washington are the rivals of all the teams I like. So I don't know who I want to win here. It's been a pretty crazy college season, though. I, I guess the one refresher would be it's nice to see a Big Ten team and, well, the Pac-12 for maybe its last year representing. But anyways, interesting game, <sighs> really good teams. Yeah, (laughs) that is my current situation right now. Anyways, I hope everyone had a great weekend. It is cold as F here. I I got up this morning at about 6.45, and I was out here having my coffee, doing my morning, you know, news reading, catching up on all the events of the day, and I forgot to keep the heat on a little bit overnight, and it was like 11 degrees out when I got up, and I'm, I'm here in Reno. Anyways, I, I drive up to Truckee for work, and it was it was about five degrees. We had to take a group photo outside, and <laughs> I'm breathing through my nose, and it's reminding me of Chicago runs where everything just freezes, and then you get inside, and you're miserable all day and congested all day. This, this felt like a, a Midwest day. This felt like an Alaska day back when I was up there doing the ski races, too. So winter seems to be here. I'm excited. I'm going to taking the morning off tomorrow. I'm finally going to get in some actual Nordic skiing. And by actual, I mean not just that man-made loop I've been having to do, but actually get out there in the morning and be by myself in the frigid cold and just soak in the views and the solitude, man. So pretty excited about that. But anyways, I have a lot to talk about today. A lot, a lot. But first I want to talk about how I'm mad. I'm mad at Democrats. And Usually I talk about Republicans, but in this little segment, I want to talk about Democrats. For the record, I'm terrified, worried, and just repulsed by the Republican Party right now. It's to the point where I've been a lifelong Republican, and now I'm like a cheerleader for the Democrats and progressives because (laughs) I was telling a buddy over the weekend I was trying to make the point that at least I feel like progressives have the right intention. My, my point was is that let's compare Marjorie Taylor Greene and Elon Omar, for example. Both are seen as kind of, one's kind of more far left, one is seen as far right. They are kind of on social media and a lot of the media hates them and a lot of the moderates hate them. And so I was making the case to my buddy, I'm like, I would take Elon Omar any day over Marjorie Taylor Greene. And my basic point was that Elon Omar, Alexandria Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, think what you want about them, but they are, yes, they're progressive. Yes, they say things I don't agree with, but it's always with the intention of helping someone, like giving something to someone that needs it. Like AOC is kind of an economic progressive she cares about helping low-income people, lower health care costs, lower college costs, getting rid of student debt. These are things that give a net positive to lower-income people. And you don't have to agree with how they do it. My case and point here is that they at least are trying to give something, a service to someone who can't access it right now. Now, if you flip the coin, 
Marjorie Taylor Greene is meeting with like Nick Fuentes and going to far right white nationalist conferences. She talks about how masks, well, she, she equivocates mask mandates to the Holocaust. She talks about Jewish space lasers. She, she compares Democrats to Nazis and other rhetoric. Like, basically, my point would be that this gal doesn't ever bring anything net to the table. Hers is about division, vitriol, and just kind of making sure this country can't have any cohesiveness. And I, I'm not saying the squad, like the Elon Omars and the Alexandro Ocasio-Cortez people, are, are trying to be unifiers either, but I guess at least their, their policies are based on the intention to help people. While Lauren Boebert is most known for groping a guy who owns a drag bar in Colorado, vaping and flipping off people after her and her husband beat each other up outside of their house, which is, by the way, a true story. And then she also goes into the house and defends January 6th protesters and attacks trans people. Same with the Matt Gateses out there. I just see the, the progressive populace, the progressive far-left people as more productive. So anyways, the reason I bring this up is because I find MAGA and the modern conservative movement much more dangerous and much more troubling. But today I am mad, very mad, very, very mad at Democrats. And the reason I'm mad at Democrats is because I was reading this Washington Post article this morning. It's actually a day old. It's by Tyler Pager. And it is called Obama Worried About Trump Urges Biden Circle to Bolster Campaign. And let's go through some of the article. It talks about how Obama got animated in discussing the 2024 election and President Trump's potential return to power. And basically one of the people that was with Obama when he was giving this talk, they said he suggested to Biden's advisors that the campaign needs more top-level decision makers at its headquarters in, 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 Deli sorry, in Wilmington, Delaware, and it must empower the people already in place. Apparently, Obama hasn't recommended specific individuals, but from my understanding, this is Obama basically saying, hey, like, you guys are probably going to lose this if you keep doing what you're doing. The Washington Post does note that Biden and Obama met a couple months ago, and it writes here in quotes, during the lunch, Obama noted the success of the reelection campaign structure in 2012 that he had. When some of his top presidential aides, including David Axelrod and Jim Messina, left the White House to take charge of the re-election operation in Chicago. And the article talks about how this is a huge contrast from Biden, who is leaving his closest aides at the White House, even though they were the main people involved in his fucking campaign that was important in 2020. And again, I'm trying not to cuss as much. It's my New Year's resolution. So give me one there. But this is a very good point. And look, Obama's a better politician than Biden. Let's be completely honest here. God, I was, I voted for Obama twice. Did I vote for him twice? No, I, only, I voted for him once because I wasn't old enough to vote for him the first time. God, I'm not that old, people. Um, but God, he would, he'd be what we need right now. But anyways, he is right that it's clear Biden is just not being a politically astute individual right now. And he should be bringing in his top White House aides to help run his campaign. Because let's be honest, I don't think many of us even know what the hell his campaign is about. And, and why I'm mad here, I'm not mad at Obama for talking to Biden. I'm mad because he's doing it now. 
And it seems like a lot of Democrats and a lot of the Democratic establishment has just been sitting around with their thumbs in their mouths for the last year. They've just been sitting around idled, just waiting and thinking Biden can win this because he won in 2020. It's insane that we are, it's like, it's like the clock struck midnight on the 31st of 2023 and became 2024. And now all of a sudden they're all worried now. Dude, people have been worried about this pretty much since Trump got revitalized. People have been sounding the alarm about this. Sarah Longwell, The Bulwark, Crystal Sager, or not Crystal Sager, Crystal Ball and Sager and Jetty. I don't agree with them on much, but they've been saying this. Like, even people on CNN, MSNBC, Fox, everyone's talking about it. So how are these people so late to the game? That's what I want to know. Everyone from, like, Sean Hannity to Anderson Cooper to Jake Tapper have been talking about this. When I list those same people in one sentence, you would think the Biden administration would be more aware of this. And next, I want to play a clip. I first saw it today, but it was from a podcast that Michelle Obama was on. And she also talks about how worried she is. And I like she's saying it, but this is something I literally said two years ago. It's going to happen in this next election. I am terrified about what could possibly happen because our leaders matter. Who we select, who speaks for us, who holds that bully pulpit. It affects us in ways that sometimes I think people take for granted. You know, the fact that people think that government, eh, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't really even do anything. And I'm like, oh my God, does government do everything for us? And we cannot take this democracy for granted. And sometimes I, I worry that we do. Again, she's not wrong. I don't think anyone's, well, anyone on this side of it thinks she's wrong. What blows my mind is just how slow they are to react to this. Maybe they should have thought something was wrong when RFK Jr. first announced and within a couple months of, but this is back when he was still running as a Democrat. And, and, and I think his views are deplorable, by the way. But maybe Biden's administration and his team should have seen a problem when RFK Jr. runs as a Democrat and gets up to 15 to 20 percent in some polling. Or when Marion Williamson also does well, well, now she's completely disappeared, but she was up around 9% back, I guess you could say, in 2023. And when his popularity is slowly declining, you have to pivot. And the administration has just failed to pivot. And the, the most interesting thing to me was, and this is one of the things that really got my blood boiling, last night, got back from dinner, I was getting ready to shower, and I was listening to Sarah Longwell's focus group, part of the Bulwark, and she had on Adam Kinzinger. And they were listening to poll groups and looking at stats for independent voters and what they thought about January 6th. And toward, Anyways, towards the end of the podcast, Kinzinger was talking about how he was moving to Texas, he got too many death threats in Illinois and wanted change, and how he thinks it's necessary to support Biden. He says, I don't even agree on Biden with much, like I'm still... A conservative, but this election is about our institutions versus someone who wants to tear them apart. And he's like, I would do whatever it takes to make sure Biden gets elected. I will campaign for him. I will vote for him. And he said that he's reached out to the Biden administration and Biden's reelection team multiple times, and he's heard nothing. And I have heard similar stories with Liz Cheney talking about this as well. And what I think the Biden 
administration and re-election team doesn't seem to understand is that in order to beat Trump, they're going to need never-Trump Republicans. They're going to need center-right independents, center-left independents, libertarians, anarcho-socialists. They're going to need pretty much everyone that doesn't like MAGA. And that means you're going to have to welcome people into your tent. And right now, there are too many people divul- you know, um, diverging, not divulging, diverging from it. Like, like you, you still have RFK, Marianne Williamson, Jill Stein is back out there. I mean, you also have still this no labels, no labels specter kind of haunting us in the background. And it just seems like Biden and his, his election team still have just kind of not come to understanding the gravity of the moment. And of course, I'm not there. I'm not a fly on the wall. I'm sure they do to an extent, but they're just not showing it. And the numbers are getting worse. The numbers are getting worse, no doubt. And that's why I'm mad is because they should be begging Adam Kinzinger, Liz Cheney, George W. Bush, those types of people to get out there and help them. Because obviously they're never going to appeal to the MAGA people, but they could appeal to the centrists who maybe think Biden's too old or maybe they're saying, well, Trump won't be that bad. Or they have this collective memory issue of how bad Trump was in the first place. So those are my thoughts. That's why I'm mad. Democrats are too late to the game again. And if Trump ends up winning this, which I think it's a 50-50 coin flip at this time, of course that can change. But if Trump ends up winning this, history will say, why did Democrats and why didn't the Biden team do more and recognize this moment? Because again, Biden's been doing all these speeches in Pennsylvania and South Carolina in front of like hardline Democrats talking about how ultra MAGA is the threat and how January 6th was bad. Okay, don't disagree with you, buddy. But is that really appealing to new voters? I don't think so. Anyways, as I sit here watching Michigan win, I just, it always plays back in my mind 2017, January, when Obama and Trump meet in the Oval Office. I think it was the Oval Office, right? And just watching them be somewhat cordial, knowing deep down they both despised each other's guts. It's just amazing. Honestly, just this whole journey. We're almost looking at eight years. (sighs) Almost eight years. Just this journey has been quite a journey, is all I can say. So as you guys know, I have talked quite a lot about how Republicans have successfully dominated The narrative about Joe Biden and foreign money, foreign corruption, just the corruption narrative in general, Hunter Biden, James Comer, and House Republicans have led that fishing expedition, masquerading as a wild goose chase, masquerading as I, as dare I say it, witch hunt. And this obviously has led to the impeachment inquiry and chaos on Capitol Hill, which is another thing. For 2024, which will be, I think, a pain for Biden, but depending on how it goes, could be more of a pain for Republicans. But as we know, of course, House Republicans recently launched this inquiry, this impeachment inquiry, into Biden, claiming that he's hiding, as Mike Johnson, the speaker, said in quotes, millions of dollars in payments from Americans' foreign adversaries. Of course, as I've talked about, and I'm not going to rehash it tonight, There's still no evidence of this. This is that whole idea of opening up the investigation 
to find the evidence. Usually you want to have the evidence before you start any sort of trial or case or hearing. The Republicans are kind of doing the opposite. It's a lot. It's kind of a game of telephone in a sense as well. This, yeah, I guess you could call this a fishing expedition masquerading as a wild goose chase that started because of a game of telephone. Bam. But anyways, <laughs> there's been some interesting revelations in the House from the Democrat side, of course. And House Democrats last Thursday released a report that actually showed that Donald Trump received and then tried to hide millions and millions of dollars from America's foreign adversaries. Remember when Mike Johnson said that Biden was hiding millions of dollars in payments from America's foreign adversaries? Well, House Republicans apparently have the receipts and evidence of Trump doing exactly that, which unfortunately, well, actually, sorry, I, I said House Republicans, I mean House uh, Democrats, but basically what it looks like here is that <laughs> Trump's, Trump's businesses got about $7.8 in foreign payments from countries, well, at least 20 countries during his presidency, the report from the House Democrats found. But that includes China, Saudi Arabia, and Russia. And the report writes here in quotes, these included payments from foreign governments and foreign government-owned or controlled entities to properties owned by Donald Trump, including hotels and office buildings. And the report notes that other payments may exist to other Trump-related entities that didn't show up in the investigation. And David Graham, is it? Yeah, yeah, David Graham has a good piece in The Atlantic that I just wanted to talk about for a minute because he talks about how basically Trump has kind of taught Americans to tolerate brazen corruption. And it seems to be okay if it's him doing it. But if anyone else does it, like Joe Biden, which which again, there's actually no direct evidence Joe Biden's done it, but you catch my drift here. But he says Trump has taught Americans to tolerate brazen corruption so long as it's his. Graham writes here, to do this, Trump relies on two tactics. First, he does much of it out in the open recognizing that voters tend to assume that only hidden deeds are nefarious, which would be some of these hotel deals I was talking about. Graham writes later in quotes here, Second, he finds ways to slow walk the release of the most damaging information, so, so that by the time the full picture is clear, the public has almost become inoculated, as though it has been out in the open all along. And I mean, let's just think of Trump's first term. I mean, that's basically everything we experienced, right? And... It has literally been about seven years since the first times that we've heard of emoluments clause violations, and it does seem to me like voters got used to the idea of Trump bringing in money, mainly mainly from places that are not the United States, and it's just, as Graham writes here, by doing it in the open, and second, by ensuring that the actual hard numbers would drip out slowly. And that's kind of Trumpism in a nutshell. And that's why I think Biden can get away with these allegations. Or not get away, he can be attacked for these allegations, but Trump seems to kind of be just writing off the of fumes here. And Graham also talks about how in the first impeachment, this was also an example of that, he writes, Trump was accused of trying to deploy the powers of the presidency to get foreign governments to intervene in American elections on his behalf. Graham writes, as Congress investigated, Trump kept at it, openly calling for foreign interference and obstructing Congress. That's the loud part and kind of just throwing it all up. You know, the 
firehood of falsehood type of thing where you're just throwing everything at the fan to see what sticks. And so Graham writes, so that the most damning details emerged gradually, blunting their impact and leaving time for patsies like Lindsey Graham to invent justifications for erasing their own red lines on quid pro quos. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think that is very true. And we're even seeing that, you know, going back to January 6th for a second. I mean, that's kind of how January 6th has been. And it just seems like, I think this is why the Democrats will always struggle in this. The Republican side of this, the MAGA side, is kind of like the frog in boiling water. It's like the base. And a lot of Americans have just kind of grown to be numb to Trump's craziness. But the same standard is not held for Democrats. And also the Democratic Party has checks on itself. Like Menendez right now, senator who is just brazenly corrupt, looking like he's he's a foreign spy. He's being condemned by everyone on the Democratic side. Like, the Democrats still hold their own accountable, and the Republicans don't. So the double standard is going to hurt Democrats. And I'm not saying that's a good thing, because I think you need to hold your own accountable to be effective. But I think we're all so numb to Trump that the focus then becomes on, it goes on to Democrats when they do something that's not even as bad. So it's a really slippery slope and a really troubling situation that I think it's just going to make 2024 nice and fun for all of us. Okay, so we're going to stick on Donald Trump, I guess, is going to be a mainly domestic episode, well, a very domestic episode. So I want to talk about something that isn't really criminal, legally binding. It's not an event that really adheres to either one of those, but it's a telling event that I think holds symbolic importance to help us understand, I think, why Trump is so involved and just, just ready to stoke instability and violence. Basically, we are seeing Biden's campaign over the last few days criticize the former president, Donald Trump, because his campaign has failed to sign something in Illinois called the loyalty oath. I don't think that's the actual name, but that's what it's kind of been known as for the last like 50, 60 years. And basically, this is a tradition in the state where candidates have to sign this oath and pledge that basically says they're not going to advocate to overthrow the government. And Trump isn't going along with that. The Guardian writes here in an article, in quotes, the Biden campaign was responding to an investigation by the Illinois news outlet WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times, which reported that Trump sidestepped signing the McCarthy-era voluntary pledge that is part of the Midwestern state's package of ballot access paperwork submitted by 2024 election candidates last week. Before I get into the response from the Trump side, I should probably give some background on kind of what this whole, as they say, McCarthy era pledge is, because as I said, this has been deemed unconstitutional. It's not legally binding, but it's kind of this historic tradition that maybe came from bad intentions, but I think actually highlights Trump's even worse intentions. And for me, I guess at the end of the day, it's a bit odd that Trump won't just go ahead and say he's not going to try to overthrow the government and just say you're not going to do it. My buddy and I over last weekend, you know, we're talking about how Trump really is his own worst enemy. And this seems like one of those cases. Honestly, the reason he could still lose to Biden, even though Biden's numbers are not looking good, is because so many Americans are just done with this type of divisiveness. Like, this is a perfect example of this stuff. It just seems like he's allergic to doing the right thing or signaling the right thing every single goddamn time. And I guess <laughs> when you have spent the last three years saying the election was stolen, denying, stolen, denying the election, 
going after Biden, saying Democrats are, you know, vile, they're vermin, they should rot in hell, the biggest enemy is the enemy from within. You really can't turn around and then go along with kind of institutional norms. And anyways, sorry, I could rant about that. You guys know I distract myself on this topic. But to keep it brief, my understanding is that Illinois has a fairly unique ballot access procedure, process, whatever you want to call it. And basically, it's that candidates must be adherent to these policies prior to getting onto the ballot. So basically, if presidential candidates want to be on its March 19th primary ballot, they must submit nominating nominating petitions to the State Board of Elections last Thursday or Friday, so the week that passed us. And the Guardian notes here in quotes, the so-called loyalty oath, which is part of the ballot access process, is a remnant of the 1950s communist bashing era of former U.S. Senator Joseph McCarthy, from Wisconsin, by the way. And in the first part of the oath, candidates swear they are not communists nor affiliated with communist groups. Candidates also confirm that they do not directly or indirectly teach or advocate the overthrow of the government of the United States or of this state or any unlawful change in the form of government, thereof by force or any unlawful means. And from my understanding, basically this, tra this tradition has been preserved by Illinois lawmakers, even though it's not been seen constitutional, basically on free speech grounds. Because again, the right to assemble is kind of part of our whole system. But as we know, the McCarthy era was, was, was a red scare. It was literally the definition of a red scare. And so in a lot of Midwest states, there was the fear of communist sympathizers and all this stuff. So you had to basically say, oh, I'm not going to become a communist sympathizer or try to overthrow our system if I become president. And so now, though, it seems to me like it's kind of become more of just a way, just a symbolic gesture in Illinois for candidates to say, no, I adhere to our system and I'll go along with it. And so, of course, Trump goes against it. And honestly, I feel like this is very Illinois. It's a very Chicago, Illinois type of oath. And of course, I can't stand McCarthy, of course, or the idea of people swearing allegiance to the opposition or being pro any ideology in order to get on a ballot. I do understand why it's been found unconstitutional by federal courts on free speech grounds. But in this case, it seems like it is a pretty simple ask. Everyone seems to do it. They are just at, they are just making you go on the record to say that you aren't interested in trying to overthrow the government. I think that's a fairly simple ask, and that's why Trump always fascinates me because even when it's a simple ask, his ego just gets in the way and he's like, "Fuck no, I'm good." And so anyways, on to Trump. His spokesman, Stephen Chung, did not actually clarify why he didn't sign the oath, but they put out a statement, and the statement said here in quotes, President Trump will once again take the oath of office on January 20th, 2025, and will swear to faithfully execute the office of President of the United States, and will to the best of my ability preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. I guess the scary thing here to me, again, why just Trump's recent rhetoric terrifies me, is because they're not even acknowledging the idea of a peaceful transition or upholding our institutions. They're just saying, well, Trump will be president and he'll be inaugurated on January 20th, 2025. Full stop. So they're basically saying he plans on winning. So what happens if he doesn't win? <laughs> and, and as I've talked about, I mean, he's already set the stage 
I was watching one of his rallies in Iowa. I was trying to find the video for this, but I couldn't couldn't quite locate it. It was on Right Side Broadcasting, which is sometimes difficult to find. But he was basically saying they're sending in non-English-speaking people to vote. I talked about this a little bit on the January 6th episode I did. But it, it actually takes like at least over half a decade. I think it's like six to seven years to actually be able to eligibly vote in the United States if you're asylum-seeking or coming in as an immigrant. Like, the process is long, so for him to say that they're sending in immigrants to, to vote, that's not really how it works. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I don't think you can just come into the country and be able to vote overnight. But that's what he's saying. He's setting up that stage. So, I don't know. This statement here to me is a little bit troubling because he's basically setting the stage for... If I win, I win, and if I lose, I won, but it was stolen. And so when he's also then not going along with this whole thing, yeah, it's a little troubling. And the the analysis from WBEZ, Chicago Sun-Times, it um, found in its state election records that Joe Biden, and this is an interesting one, Ron DeSanctimonious, actually both signed the oath. And this is the interesting thing to me is that Ron DeSanctimonious signed it, but some of Trump's other uh, other, opponent, uh, other opponents did not sign it. And that includes Nikki Haley and Chris Christie. So this is interesting to me. And I understand this is all symbolic. It doesn't actually mean much. So, so, so to me, Chris Christie not signing it or Nikki Haley not signing it is, is less important than Trump not signing it because he is just basically... If there's any way that he has to adhere to institutions and just the peaceful transfer of power, even if it's symbolic, he is going to go against it. And I think that's what this tells me more than anything. I am surprised Ron DeSantis, of all people, signed it. Like, if you had told me before I did research for this episode that DeSantis signed the oath and Christie didn't, I'd be like, bullshit. (laughs) But here we are in 2024. Anyways, things in Illinois are also not looking great for Trump. Not looking great for Trump because on the same day... He didn't sign the oath. Five Illinois voters, voters, like just citizens, not politicians or court officials, filed a petition to remove him from the state's primary ballot, according to the Washington Post. And I was reading a piece on this, and it talks about how this legal challenge from these five voters has made Illinois the 18th state that is trying to now grapple with, I guess you could say forced to grapple with what Trump's next moves are going to be and whether he's going to be disqualified from the 2024 ballot. So again, Illinois, another interesting state on the list of chaos. And I don't know, I I just find, again, going, going full circle back to the beginning of this podcast, I just find it interesting how kind of poorly run the democratic establishment is right now because like the crazy people are getting crazier and the democratic establishment is finally recognizing that hey guys we we might be having some issues and i said this in 2020 i said like basically trump biden was like flipping a coin who wins it and if you run that coin flip a hundred times trump may win it 40 times he might not even win it 50 Biden might win it 60 times out of 100 that you run that coin toss. But if Trump in real life is one of those 40, it's not great. And we're starting to look at a scenario where 
even if he loses, even if Biden wins, we're going to just see chaos. And I, I just wish there was more of an establishment response about a year ago at this time and not now. So anyways, we'll, we'll end on this happy note. As always, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube. You guys know the rest. Have a great day.